Acts chapter 3. So let's look over it again a little bit. How many of you guys are liking the new place? Is it, you guys digging this? It's good. I tell you, last week, and a little bit this week, I'm just kind of distracted. I'm like, wow, look at the cool lights. You know, and those shades on the, on the window, those are cool, and the carpet's clean. How many of you have been in the other building? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't all those things, you know. So uh, it's a little distracting. And then this thing here, I got this thing on. It's a little distracting, but it's cool because now I can juggle when I teach. I can, I can do interpretive dancing, all the things that I've always pondered in my heart to do. And finally do those things. Um, so look at Acts chapter 3. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. At 3 in the afternoon, that's the ninth hour. They call that uh, uh, the evening prayer. And before we go any further, I'd just like to stop. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, no, we're not going to get past the chapter. I mean, verse 1. We are. We're going to get past verse 1. But I have to stop and say um, that I was, as I was reading this, and just I couldn't really get past verse 1 too much because I found this very, um, like a sentimental moment here. And you may be looking at the Scripture and you go, dude, what's... What's the big deal? Two guys are going up to the temple to pray. And I guess if you were opening the Bible up like this, and you read, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, you might think, oh, two guys are going up to the temple to pray. But if you're someone who has invested yourself in the Word of God, you've begun journeying through the, through the Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find yourself in the book of Acts, and then you read this sentence, you know that there's more, that, more going on than just two guys going to the to the uh, temple to pray. It's kind of like when you read a book. You know, if you were to grab any book and you open it up and you hit in the middle and you see, you read, you know, Billy Bob grabs Susie Q's hands and looks in her eyes intensely. And then they both turn and walk up the street towards the church. You're like, cool. But if you know the backdrop, that Billy Bob was a loser all his life, didn't know God, but had this intense love for Susie Q, you know this is like hypothetical. <laughs> but Susie Q rejected him all these years because he just refused to know God. But circumstances have led, you know, Billy Bob to come to know God. Just moments before he grabbed her hand, he said yes to Jesus. Well, that makes it a little different. It's like, oh, he, he, he grabbed her hand and they could be together now. And He's going to heaven and the whole thing. You're invested. You're like, oh, oh, and you just turn the pages. You want to know what happens next. It's the same thing with the Bible. If you're invested in this thing, when you read certain parts, really any part, there's some very sentimental moments in Scripture. And you think about Peter and John. And Peter and John have quite a history together. Peter and John have, have known each other for a long time. If you take it back, if you're familiar with Scripture, if you're not, you could, I challenge you to go and read these things. If you look back, even in Mark 1, when Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter and John were among those first few. Remember, he goes up to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he finds Peter and his brother Andrew in there. He says, come follow me. He says that they dropped their nets and came and follow him. And it says he went a little bit further up the shore there and found uh, James and John, the sons of, sons of Zebedee. He said... You guys, you come and follow me too. In fact, if you look over at Luke 5, the same story indicates that those four guys, those families, were in business together. How long have Peter and John known each other? They could have known each other since they were kids. 
since they were little boys. They, they probably have, they just know all the faults and all the successes, all the failures, all the good things, all the bad things. They have a major history together. And then here God is calling them to leave a life of fishing for fish and to become fishers of men. And when we see them walking up to the temple, these two, it's more than just two guys going up to the temple. It's two guys with quite a history, not to mention what their history looked like since knowing Jesus, since the day they dropped their nets to follow the Lord. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but there were moments in Scripture where Jesus went to go do some things and he invited a special crew in particularly Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. At least, at least three you can read in Scripture where he went and he did some cool stuff and he invited only three of the 12 disciples. One of them is whenever he goes to raise the daughter of Jairus back to life. You guys may remember that story. It's uh, over in Mark chapter 5, verse 35 through 43. If you don't know the story, Jesus is walking along and he's, he's doing his thing in this uh, Jairus comes up to him. Jairus was a synagogue official and comes up to him and says, my daughter is sick. She's on her deathbed. I need you to come and heal her. And Jesus said, I'll be right there. And so they start walking to Jairus's house and some stuff goes on, the woman with the issue of blood and all that in the meantime. And then while they were walking, I don't even know how far off, but someone from Jairus's house comes and says, you know what? Forget about it. It's too late. She's died. And Jesus is like, <laughs> it's all good. Let's keep going. Goes to the house, gets there, and everybody's mourning, everybody's weeping, everybody's crying, everybody's very emotional. And it was a very emotional thing. His, his daughter is, is dead. And Jesus said, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And everybody's like, what you talking about, Willis? You know what I mean? <laughs> You're laughing, and that's what they did. They were literally laughing at Jesus. If you read Scripture, it says that they laughed at him. But Jesus is like... Whatever. And he said, Peter, James, John, come inside with me. And he goes up to her and he says, rise or wake up. And we both know, or we all know both, all of us know that she raised back to life. And he said, she's probably hungry. Give her something to eat. There's this very special moment where Peter and John, these guys that we now see going up to the temple, were both there. They got to see that. They got to witness all of it. They got to see the ridicule of Jesus, but they got to see the confidence that was in Jesus. And they got to see the power of God raise this lady, uh, this little girl from the dead. It was a very great moment, and they were invited in on that. It's very, very, very cool. Think about uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Most of you guys are familiar with that story. Again, it says Jesus went up to a high mountain, and he invited Peter, James, and John along. If you don't know the story, when they got up there, Jesus walks off and all of a sudden is talking with these two figures. And it was assumed to be Moses and Elijah. And it says in, uh, right in front, of the, in front of them, in front of their very eyes, Jesus transformed. It says he became radiant and exceedingly white. And in that moment, Peter and James and John saw Jesus literally as he truly was. The glorious Son of God. They got to see that. The only three out of all those people. And they got to see it. They literally saw his glory. When I say his glory, I mean his reputation. They saw him for who he truly was. And if you know the story, they make a goofy comment. Let's build a tent here. Let's stay here a while. And this voice came from heaven and said, shh, 
This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. They're like, oh my goodness. Not only do we see him as he truly is, we hear this voice from heaven, which is obviously God, say, this is my son. And so these guys have more affirmation that Jesus is who he said he is than anyone else. And then you think about the day that, um, the night before Jesus was crucified, we know that he went up to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And all the disciples were there, but then he went in further into the garden and he said, Peter, James, John, come with me. And if you read that scripture, you know that Jesus was very distraught. It was a very emotional time. Scripture says that he literally sweated blood. He was in such agony about what was going to happen. They saw his humanity. They saw, yes, they knew he was fully God, but also he's fully man, like Scripture says. And they saw all of these things. And then they actually heard the prayers. If you're familiar with the prayers, Jesus is literally praying for his disciples and all that would follow him, this sweet, um, powerful, compassionate prayer for, for his disciples that they would endure, that they would make it, that they would stand strong during the rest of the season. It was very powerful. And those three guys, Peter and John, they were there for that. There's something special about Peter and John. Something very, you think about Peter. Peter's the one that got that revelation from heaven that Jesus was the Messiah that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember Jesus said that one time, he said, who do the people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say this, some say that, a prophet. Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my father in heaven revealed that to you. It's like this, and then Jesus goes on to say, upon that rock or that revelation or that truth, I'm going to build my church on that. And and he indicates that Peter is going to be somewhat of a forerunner for his church, the very church that Christ will build. And you see in Acts, especially in chapter 2, where he goes off and he preaches this powerful message, 3,000 people get saved. There's something special about Peter, isn't Isn't there? We can all agree about that. And you think about John. Again, I just want want to build this idea, this thought. John was super special. He is the one that is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus had a tender affection for John. And you think about who John was. Among the disciples, he was the youngest. And the youngest had certain um, kind of privileges in the Hebrew culture. The youngest is the one that got to stay close to the father or the, or the head of the household figure. And so he was close to Jesus all the time. You think about the Last Supper, and it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved laid back on the breast of Christ and was just chilling and relaxing. The youngest is the one that got to answer, uh, ask the questions at the meals. That would be John. And John's just asking and living it up. And if you look at his gospel, even more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, his gospel is full of the truth and the reality of Jesus' love and the love of God. He got something more than anybody else. He was the one asking the questions. He was the one that was close to Jesus. And he was the one that was considered the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter and John, both of these guys were, were, um, were very special I want you to see a scene here, too, just so you you can get this. Because I don't know, we just don't think about this stuff. We've got to find these sentimental moments in Scripture. Turn really quick to John 20, verse 2. John 20, verse 2. It shouldn't be too much further back. John 20, verse 2. Most of us are familiar with the scene, at least. This is when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb that morning that Jesus rose from the grave. It says, now on the first day of the week, this is John 20, verse 2. Well, let's just read until we stop. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, Magdalene came early to the tomb, and while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to who? Simon Peter. And then I actually love the way this is written. There's something here. <laughs> and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm just saying, there's no comma in there. It doesn't say he ran to Peter and to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it doesn't say that. The way I read it is, so Peter, I mean, um, she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple that Jesus loved. I'm not saying these guys are like, you know, the word says that God's no respecter of persons, but there's something about these guys that put them in a little bit different category. I mean, you guys see that as well? It's definitely true. Now, I love this because you guys got to see this. The other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, she said, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And Peter and the other disciple, it's John. Peter and John were like, what? I don't think so. So Peter and the other, get this picture. Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And the other disciple, John, ran ahead faster than Peter. Peter might have been a little heavy. I don't know. I always got that picture. (laughs) And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings uh, lying there. And he did did not go in. And so Simon came in. They both went in. It was this big thing. My point is, is that she came and told Peter and John, and it was Peter and John that jetted to the tomb. They were running. They were racing. They were passionate about seeing their Lord and their Savior alive again. There's something special about these guys. They, they ran. Their affection for Christ was different. I would just have to say it was a little deeper. And we know Peter failed and we, he had some goofy moments. But he had this affection that was a little deeper. It was a little stronger than most. And you can see that these guys knew and had spent time with Jesus by what happens next. You can see that they experienced three encounters that no one else did. I think, I think all that's important to know as we read that Peter and John went up to the temple to pray. Look what it says. I went up to the temple to pray at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down. They used to set down in front uh, of the temple, which is called the temple gate, which is called beautiful. Real quick, there was nine doors or entrances into the temple. Um, they were all very tall, very ordained, gold and silver. But there was one, um, Nicanor or something they called it, and it was quite a bit taller and it was had more precious um, gold and silver stuff, but it was also... Um, built out of Corinthian brass, which was like major, major expensive um, material back then. And so this gate called Beautiful was bigger and it was better. And it was the entrance, by the way, it faced east, which was a very important thing if you know anything about Hebrew culture. And so because of all the things that it was, the, uh, it was most frequented. Most people went into this entrance. And so where this guy chose to do his begging for alms was a very high trafficked area. And so it says, uh, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along. They sat down every day. By the way, this is just an indication of how 
they're about to perform a miracle. We know that because we've read it. But this isn't like somebody that was hurt in the war or, you know, hurt his leg playing basketball or something and, and these guys healed. This is a guy that had never walked before in his life. And it's just, it shows the intensity of the miracle that's about to happen. So look what it says. When he saw Peter, when this beggar, this lame beggar, saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. He thought they were just other guys going in the temple like everybody else. And Peter and John fixed, it says, Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. Look at us. And there's an exclamation there. I don't think he yelled. I don't think he was like, look at us, you bum! Or anything like that. I just think he said, look at us. And he says, says that the man began to give him his attention because he was expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have any gold and I don't have any silver. I think it's interesting that he's standing in front of the most beautiful gate going into the temple, (laughs) the most adorned gate. He says, I don't have any silver or any gold. I don't have any Corinthian brass. I don't even have any lint in my pocket. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Walk. And there's another exclamation point. I don't know that he yelled at him. I don't know that he screamed, but he said, walk. Now keep in mind, over in Acts 2, it says that there was a sense of awe in the city because all these great things were going on. There was a sense of awe or reverence or fear of the Lord going on in the city. And so this beggar surely would have known that something was going on and it was going on in the name of Jesus Christ. And so whenever he said, what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene, the guy was probably like, it's one of them. And then Peter says, walk. Now I want to just stop real quick and just say, he says, what I do have, I give to you. You ever stop to think like what, what I do have? What did he have? What did Peter and John have? Well, let's just go back to those amazing three encounters that they had with Jesus, just, just the boys that night. They saw Jesus operate with compassion, with Jairus' daughter. So they saw him operate with confidence. Everybody's laughing at him. They saw that in Jesus, their Savior. They also got to see themselves, Jesus, radiant and exceedingly white. That would put a confidence in me, confidence in me. If I saw the Lord that way, I'd be like, wow, it really is the Son of God. And everything he said is true. Everything he said is real. They saw him up in the garden praying, hearing his prayers. They saw his humanity. They saw his compassion, his love for the disciples, his prayers. They, they heard him probably say, granted, they were asleep half the time, but they might have picked up at least in a dream part of their, you know, REM sleep or whatever. They might have heard him say something like, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me because of his humanity. But they also heard him with confidence say, but not my will, not what I want, but what you want. And I think that if there's two things that these guys had, and you can write this down if you're writing stuff down, if there's two things that the disciples had to offer this guy. It was their compassion and it was their confidence. In that moment, you might, you might say they had even what, what uh, you find in 2 Corinthians as, a, as the gift of faith. 
But you see that confidence. It's exclamation point. It's like, look at us. And he says, um, stand up. Or what does he say? He says, uh, walk. And if that's not enough to show that they were operating with uh, confidence, look how he gets him up. (laughs) So what I do have, I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus the Nazarene. He says, walk. And then it says, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Now, check it out. I was just curious. I thought, man, seizing. That's kind of an intense word. I wonder how intense it is. So I just looked it up. That, that um, word seize is literally a fisherman's term. And it's like, it means like a violent yank. You know, it's like, you guys, you guys catch that? He seized him. He, he wasn't like, come on, let me help you. I'm telling you, I prayed for you. If you will just believe. He says, walk. And he goes, Foom. And like the fisher of men that he is, he yanked this man out of his current condition, out of his current waters, and put him in a whole new place in life. Isn't that powerful? You only yank somebody up by their right hand off the ground when you have a confidence that when they hit the floor, they're going to hit the floor running. I love that. That's why it's not two guys went up to the temple. No, it's Peter and it's John went up to the temple. Two men that had seen something of Jesus and experienced a relationship, a personal thing with Jesus that no one else had seen. Isn't that good? What I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. I have a compassion that comes straight from the heart of God for you. And I have a confidence that God will heal you in this moment. And he just yanks him up. How many of you have been fishing? How many of you have ever caught something that's a pretty substantial sized fish? Is that not the funnest thing in the world? When it finally takes, you're like, whoa, whoa, and it usually takes more, you know. I love it. I love that imagery. Seizing him. It's a fishing term. This guy used to be a fisherman. Jesus said, come on, you're going to be fishers of men. And this, this first miracle, really, that we see, other than the stuff in chapter second chapter of Acts, the first one we see him Yanking one out of the pond, you know what I mean? And I love it. I love it. Gold and silver I have not, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. I think, again, knowing the full story, even going back before the Gospels, reading the prophecies, the, the prophets and and all that stuff. There's something about this scene that you're just going, yes. Because this is what Jesus came to do. Look at Isaiah real quick. Chapter 35, verse 6. Look at Isaiah real quick. And we're actually almost done. Isaiah, chapter 35, verse 6. And I would love for you to, if you have a pen and you like to mark things in your Bible, I would love for you to mark this in your Bible. And just refer to it later. My Bible lays, labels this section uh, Zion's happy future. <laughs> Zion's happy future. I'm going to read a little bit more than just six. Can I start in verse one? This is a, this is prophetic about the Messiah, about the Christ, and what he would do, what he would accomplish. And how he would be the bomb. Okay. 
The wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Araba will rejoice. Araba is a desert. Will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoicing, uh, and will rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. Check. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Check, check. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Let's go back to Acts chapter 3. See what happened. Apparently, after Peter yanks him out of the water, immediately his feet and his ankles are strengthened. Verse 7. In verse 8, with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Isaiah 35, 6, coming to pass. Not that Jesus didn't do that himself. And I think that's what the cool stuff is. Jesus did do that, but it didn't stop with him. Here we are, two people that had a personal, powerful, unique relationship with Christ are carrying on the tradition, if you will, walking in the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And they're yanking people up out of the, the pool of, of despair. And, and uh, <laughs> that totally made me think of Princess Bride. Sorry. Pit of despair. <laughs> Sorry. Boo! okay i didn't lose you did i okay we're still good anyway yanks him up it says that he was walking and leaping and all the people were and all the people saw him walking and praising god and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate begging the guy, they literally, you guys, they, they would carry him. I don't know who was assigned. Maybe they had a rotation. And they would carry him, and they would put him at the gate to beg alms. And that's what he did day in and day out. In fact, if you look over in Acts, um, I think it's 4, it indicates that this man was about 40 years old. Wow. This guy's whole life, 40 years. I don't know when he started begging at the temple. But the point is, is for 40 years, this man has never been able to stand upright. What a powerful moment the apostles, Peter and John, were able to accomplish in the name of Jesus Christ. What we do have, and I'll just say this, you guys, for us, like, well, okay, well, how does that apply to me? Well, where are we at in relation to Peter and John? We have the same opportunity to have that unique relationship with Christ. To be able to experience his compassion, and to understand and to feel his heart and to know his heart and to walk with the same kind of confidence and to see the same kind of need 
and move past what seems like uh, the great need, but move to the really true and great need, which is touching someone's heart, changing their life. You know, what happens is we read stuff like this and we like to focus on the miracle. I'm not nearly as impressed with the miracle as I am with the model. And you need to hear that. We need to be more impressed with the model than we are the miracle. Because if we're always focusing on the miracle, you know what? We might be let down here and there. Because there's times where for some reason God doesn't do it exactly how we think he's going to do it. And we get let down and we get this and we get that. It's like, listen, that's his call. The word says it's the Holy Spirit's call when and how he's going to heal someone and use that gifting in someone. What we focus on is being the model. What have we seen in Jesus Christ? What do we read? What have we experienced personally? It's like Peter and John. And they were just modeling what they saw. And in that moment, God gave them the the gift of faith, and they were able to raise this guy up. Remember, it didn't say that the the man was like, okay, give me a second. No, it didn't even wait for that. Peter's like, I know what's up. And he yanks him out. And he healed him. I just think it's a powerful lesson. I mean, beyond the miracle, just to see a little deeper. And then it goes on and, and talks about a second sermon that Peter gives. And it's very similar to the one we read uh, last week or the past few weeks in the second chapter of Acts. So I'm not going to go there. I just want to leave us with this. In fact, let's stand. I think one of the best things to do anytime we are, we are um, reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, or, or in the presence of, of teaching, is when that time is done, is just to do like a little checklist, kind of like we did, you know? Blind will see, check. <laughs> you know, checklist. For us, the checklist is, what do I have? And this morning, I guess maybe it's just a two-fold checklist. How, how much of the heart of the Lord do I understand? And to understand his heart, you've got to know his heart. You've got to know his, his written word, and you need to know his, his uh, spoken word, where he can speak to us through the Holy Spirit. We've t- we talk about that a lot here at Soma. But that takes time, and it takes effort. It takes stillness. It takes quietness. So how much of the Lord's heart, how, how, how uh, and, and I guess I'm speaking of compassion, it's like how much of the compassion of the Lord do we have? and other attributes of his heart. And I just want to, you know, the checklist is, do I, do I have that? And knowing that it comes from, I guess you can make it a threefold checklist. Do I spend, do I have a unique and personal relationship with the Lord? And do I encounter him on amazing occasions like that? Do I engage him? And do I um, submit whenever I sense that he's engaging me? And do I quiet my heart, quiet my life? And do I really listen to what's up? That's, that's the first, check, yes or no. The second is, do I come away with those times with a true understanding of his heart? Because there's a difference in getting in a quiet place, going through the, 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 um, the rhetoric and the, the motions of a quiet time, but then walking away with no more or less than you came with. 
It is possible every time we sit down with the word of God or in prayer or in worship that we, there's this holy exchange that happens. The word talks about him just, he gives stuff to us freely. He relays the secrets of old and the things that are on his heart. We've talked about that so much. So check two, do I walk away from those times with the Lord? Inspired by what's on his heart to move let the things that are his heart become the things that are my heart as well. And I guess check three would be, where is my confidence level? Would I dare go up to someone and seize them and yank them up? <laughs> now, that's kind of a hard one because <laughs> culturally, you know, you might get slapped or something. But it's not about that, is it? It's about engaging those who are still swimming in a putrid pond. It's about engaging them and being the fisher of men that God's called us to be and to, to say or to do something or to pray, to bless and do the things that it takes for some fish to want to be in a different pond. Do I have that kind of confidence or am I scared to approach anyone? And we see people that are hurting and lame and deaf and blind and poor and this and that all the time. And we just pass by. And usually, it's not because we don't have silver or gold. It's not because we don't have anything to give them. We do have something to give them. It's usually out of a lack of confidence or a fear or an insecurity. Well, what if God, well, what if he doesn't? Or what if it doesn't? Or what if they just, it doesn't matter. Just follow the model. He said he'll give us the words to say. And he said he'll do the things that he says he'll do. Granted, we always have to depend on his timing and his stuff, but that's not the point. What takes place isn't the point. It's my obedience to the model. You guys understand what I mean by that? That seems kind of weird, but it's like I just, I think if we followed the model more, we would see more of the miracles. That is one of the things, especially on this younger generation, that irks the junk out of us. Why don't we ever see the stuff that happened in the second chapter of Acts? And if you want to call a spade a spade, it's because we, as a cultural group of Christians, are not being a very good model. Beyond that, I don't know. But I know me, I'm not near the model that Peter and John were. But I want to be. And I guess that's the check number three, you know? Let's close our eyes and just um, just a time of prayer and just quiet and just silencing ourselves. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be be this big to do. It's just like, where am I at? Kind of an inventory thing. And Lord, we're sitting here right now and we just, we're, we're really desperate, Lord, to see the things that took place here in Acts, to be the type of disciples that worked the miracles and that worked and walked in the power of God. We, we want to be those disciples, Lord. We want to walk in a new level of holiness. We ourselves want to be completely separate from that putrid pond that we used to be in. It's our heart's desire to be different and to be more like you. We do want to see miracles, Lord. We do want to see the power of God in our midst. In Tyler, Texas, when we go out on the mission field, Lord, We want to see people restored, their hands, their feet, their eyes, their ears. We want to see people raised from dead 
back to life. Lord, we want to see those things. Lord, I just ask that you would help us to see what it means to be transformed into your likeness, to be more like you, to be the model, to do the things that you did, to say the things that you did, to have the heart that you have, and just to move with confidence and to pray, even when we're scared, just to pray simple prayers of hope, encouragement, and blessing. And I think whenever we, we pray to, to go further with the Lord and we ask for the Lord to help us, I don't think he ever goes, I ain't going to help you. I think every time he says, I will help you and I will meet you there. And so whether you're praying something like that this morning or you go home this afternoon or tonight or you pray something like that, you can expect that the Lord will engage you in a different way. And he will give you the things that you need to be more of that model, to have that confidence and all those things that we've talked about this morning.